I'm Chuck Seigers, and you're listening to More Than 140, a podcast in which I have conversations with people I know and people I would like to know better. My guest today is a favorite uh, and a good friend of mine. His name is Sid Schwab. He is a semi-retired general surgeon, and we're going to put the semi prefix in quotes since he still seems to be keeping his hand in the game. He is also a writer, uh, the author of a memoir, Cutting Remarks, Insights and Recollections of a Surgeon, published by Frog Books from Berkeley, California. You can find it at northatlanticbooks.com and at amazon.com, of course. He's also written a couple of blogs, uh, the first one being surgeonsblog.blogspot.com, which, as Sid talks about in our podcast, uh, became actually fairly famous and prominent in the world of medical blogging. And then eventually he transitioned over into sidschwab.blogspot.com, in which he discusses politics of the day from a particular liberal uh, standpoint. Uh, So if that's not your cup of tea, you probably won't be interested, particularly if you enjoy Fox News. And Sid and I have conversations every two or three months. We get together for coffee, uh, usually with uh, another friend, and we talk about the events of the day and just what's going on in our lives. But it was a pure joy to have a couple of hours to to cover a variety of subjects, including medicine, history, historical figures, and writing. Sid is a an eloquent articulate writer and i and i read everything he writes and always enjoy it and i think you would too so this is sid schwab and we begin our podcast today at the appropriate place which is the beginning when i applied to college i i Figured I was going to be a lawyer because I grew up grew up with lawyers, and my dad was a lawyer and a judge, and uh, my brother's a lawyer. My aunt was one of the first female lawyers in Oregon, and uh, you know I liked hearing them talk about stuff. And so anyway, but so I put down pre-law, I guess, when I applied to college. But I did take uh, pre-med courses because I sort of figured. I mean, that was in my background as well. My biological father was a was a doctor and he died actually 10 days before i was born and Hmm. um so um but when i got to to college i found i was having a hell of a lot more fun in uh labs and stuff you know than i was Uh in the library and i just said you know i guess i'm not that my uh, that sort of cerebral type i guess that it would take to be a lawyer even though i still uh, i still kind of fascinated by it we've talked so many times and a lot of times we've talked about politics and i'm not uh, opposed to doing that although that might be a whole another podcast yeah. but uh i realized there are some things that i that i was always very curious about you particularly as it uh related to your career but I wanted to start with uh, talking a little bit about uh, Libby Zion. Oh, okay. And uh, so you know Libby Zion. Sure. And you know the case, right? right? So just for anybody who's listening, Libby Zion was a 18-year-old uh, New York young woman who was admitted with flu-like symptoms to a hospital. 
and some screw-ups happened, maybe. Or maybe it was just bad luck. But um, these were in, just was just a few years before SSRIs were approved, I think. Uh, it was before a few years before Prozac, anyway. So she was taking uh, uh, um, uh, Nardil, an MAO inhibitor, which was, I guess, I don't know if, I think that was the antidepressant of choice maybe back then. I'm not quite sure. But she was taking an antidepressant. And she was having a reaction. Um, she was a little agitated. They put her in restraints. Uh, they gave her some Haldol to try to calm her down. And they gave her uh, Meperidine, which back then, I, I know I'm telling you stuff you already know. I'm just for people who might be listening. And Meperidine uh, is probably better known as Demerol, a narcotic, yeah. Yeah, and and back then they were thinking it was less addictive and it had certain properties, and a lot of that was, it turns out to be, from what I read, were, were myths. Um, but at any rate, uh, her attending physician admitted her, her family physician admitted her, and then she was put under the care of a couple of residents, right. uh, a PGY-1 and a PGY, a first-year resident and a second-year resident. And they had another 40 patients, and one of them went off to take a nap, and when they checked on her again, she had a fever of 107, and she eventually suffered a cardiac arrest and died. And they did a lot of investigation, and I don't think anything was ever, I don't think there was ever a prosecution, and I don't think the physicians involved, unless I'm mistaken, ever particularly suffered except by association with the case. But her father believed that one of the reasons that she died, if not the main reason, was that the residents were overworked. Right. And they, uh, in a few years, New York passed a law that said that, that residents couldn't work any more than 80 hours per week and they had to have a certain like a 24 hour every 24 hours they had to have a certain amount of break time or whatever and eventually i think it became national correct okay so my my this was after your time i'm assuming you were already through residency by the mid 80s right. or the early yeah obviously so so um so my question is i was curious as to what your experience was as as a resident and was it did you was it different as a surgical resident as opposed to uh you know maybe at that point focusing on on another specialty or thinking about another specialty well that's you know it's a very interesting case because uh it 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 significantly changed how uh training of doctors occurs in terms of time spent and it has it had i think a much larger effect on surgical training than other specialties because surgical training had been notorious for being very demanding in terms of time and when i trained uh you know the young people like to hear us old guys saying this and say yeah 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 you know walked walked to school uphill both ways but when i trained uh we the easy rotations that I had were the ones where I got home every other night. Uh, the other ones I got home every other weekend and uh, usually from, you know, late Saturday afternoon. So uh, and when I was chief resident on the trauma service, I never left the hospital for two months straight. So except for one night when one of my attendings let me get out of there for whatever reason. Uh, so. And, you know, it wasn't that I loved it working that hard, but I always did feel that 
it was necessary and it was the only way to get the sort of experience that I felt you needed to have as a surgeon. If you're going to go out and let people uh, and have people let you operate on them, literally have their life in your hands, I felt like, you know, that is a huge commitment and a huge promise to the patient, you know, that you're going to know what you're doing and will have had enough experience to be able to know when you don't know what you're doing and to have a commitment that um, you're going to stick with it until whatever is going on is resolved. So the... um, you know, there I, there were times when I, you know, when on the times when I was out of the hospital and we'd go to visit some friends or something, it was pretty typical. We'd go over to a friend's house and I'd go to sleep, <laughs> you know. But, <laughs> but so it was, you know, it wasn't fun exactly, except that it was, much of it was really thrilling to see myself sort of evolve from knowing nothing to getting to the point where I thought I could actually do these things. But I always felt that it was part of the commitment. And um, I have a, where I trained was pretty academic oriented place. So a lot of the people that I trained with went into academic surgery and, um, and I've spoken with them over the years. And since this Libby Zion uh, case, the, 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 you know, on one level, it's kind of laughable, isn't it? We're forced to limit our hours to 80 a week. That's right. You know, <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, we were working, I don't know how many hours there are in a week, but we were working more than 80 hours a week for sure. Um, anyhow, my friends in academe, and I've seen it myself, uh, feel that this has significantly changed the experience. Uh, For one thing, there's sort of now a shift worker mentality, you know, 7 p.m., sorry, I'm out of here. We didn't, we never did that. You know, we, if things needed doing, we stayed and did them. And, uh, you know, if you operated on a patient, you've, that was your patient, but now it's sort of, okay, check it out. Here you go. Um, Plus people are finishing training with much less experience uh, under their belt. You know, they've done many fewer operations, which has led to um, a major trend of, again, I'm speaking mainly of surgery, of people finishing surgical training. And because they're not, I think maybe they're aware they're not fully trained, they go into these subspecialties. So they do a fellowship post-training in oncology or breast surgery or biliary surgery, whatever. So then you have these sort of highly specialized people in practice, which right. I don't know entirely whether that's good or bad, but it, uh, but it, um, I was good old Doc Schwab, I guess. I love the fact that I could be the, the family surgeon, you know, I'd operate on somebody and then their wife and her husband and kids later on and for one thing and then another. I, I like that. But that's that's sort of a personal thing. I, I, I wouldn't say that argues in favor or against uh, super specialty training. Now, you grew up in Oregon, right? right? Okay. So where did you go to undergraduate? I went to Amherst College in Massachusetts. Oh, and I knew that. Yeah. Uh, I just forgot it. And so medical school was where? It was. That's an amusing thing, too. It's, uh, it's okay. now called uh, 
case they like to call themselves case it was western reserve university at the time sure and western sure. reserve was well here's my thing my my little ego tells me it was sort of embarrassing because very few people outside of the medical profession would have heard of western reserve at that time in fact i think even my dad wondered why it sounds like a you know kind of a second-rate military school but at the time it was really a and it remains a kind of a forerunner in that it had made some major changes in the way medical education is structured. So it was a very um, uh, desirable place to go. But mm. that anyway, it was in Cleveland, and uh, I was in Cleveland uh, for the famous event of the uh, Cuyahoga River catching fire, which... Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you get a bachelor's degree somewhere around 1965. 66, yeah. 66. Right. So you're in a really troublesome time yeah so uh, so tell me how that happened uh, i mean i i know you went to vietnam and i just i just don't know exactly when yeah well i um you know that it was interesting i think i i was i was so naive in so many ways i i'm embarrassed to say this but when i was in college of course that was when the the uh, early uh phases of the of anti-war anti-vietnam war protests and my graduating class i think made national headlines by virtue of the fact that robert mcnamara was one of the graduation uh, speakers and uh, oh. when he uh, got up or i don't remember if he spoke or if he was just given an honorary degree i can't remember that part but when it happened a number of guys in the class when i went to amherst it was a small, very small school, and it was all male. So anyway, some of the guys stood up, turned their backs to him, and some oh. actually got up and walked out. And that made the national news because, I mean, that was one of the earliest protests. <laughs> you know, no one was throwing Molotov cocktails or anything. It was just a silent protest. And uh, and I, what I started to say, I was embarrassed to say that when um, – I, I, there was a sort of a counter m movement going on among some students saying that, you know, this anti-war stuff, it's un-American and all that. And I actually signed a letter that was sent to president, to LBJ basically saying, you know, if you're telling us we need to be doing this, then we are going to trust you. And that's, that's yeah. where I was at that point. By the time I graduated from medical school, I had an anti, uh, you know, a peace sign and all that kind of stuff on my gown. And um, then by the, my evolution of political sensibility and stuff during medical school, um, well, I was on this medical committee for human rights or whatever it was. Anyway, there was some kind of meeting and uh, we were supposed to and people were talking about having a, a moratorium on classes in protest uh, of the war. And Jack Coy was, uh, I guess, advisor to the committee or something. He came in and he said, what we need is a moratorium on bullshit. <laughs> so <laughs> that was Cactus Jack. But so, uh, yeah, I um, by the time I graduated from medical school, I was much more cynical, I think. But uh, and then <clears throat> I started my surgical internship and there was a program for, you know, people were getting drafted like crazy back then and doctors right. were being drafted. And so uh, there was a program called the Berry Plan where you could um, you would commit to going into the military, but they would defer taking you in until you'd finished whatever specialty training uh, you had trained in and then you'd be guaranteed to 
go into the military in that specialty. And I applied for the Barry plan, but um, by then they had, they were started starting to get to the point where they had enough surgeons and I did not get into the Barry plan. So I went and talked to my uh, department head who had been uh, one of these guys and there were a lot of academic department heads back then who'd all been surgeons together in World War II and had a great time. And he said, hey, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, uh, war is good for surgeons. So anyway, so I just I got a draft notice around right at the end of my internship. And uh, and so that's how it happened. I just got drafted. And then a, a friend told me, well, if you got to go to the military, then uh, call up so-and-so at the Presidio in San Francisco and tell them you want to go into the Air Force because it's, uh, you know, you can get flight training, you can be a flight surgeon, you get flight, uh, some uh, flight pay, you, you get this other stuff, it's kind of fun, plus you probably won't have to go to Vietnam. So I called the guy and I, and I ended up somehow or another, magically, I was suddenly assigned to the Air Force. And then some other guys that I trained with who had been in the military said, okay, now call down to uh, Lackland Air Force Base and talk to Colonel somebody or other, and um, and he's in charge of assignments. So I did that, and uh, he said, uh, okay, so uh, how would you like to go to Vietnam? And I said, well, <laughs> you know, I guess I'm not – I'd rather not. Um, I'm, uh, and he said, well, okay, how about the Philippines? And I said, well, you know, I'm thinking about getting married, which was, uh, Judy and I were dating at that point. We really hadn't talked about getting married, but I figured sooner or later we might. So it wasn't exactly a lie. I said, so I wouldn't, you know, I mean, up to me, I'd stay stateside. He said, well, okay, call back in about three days and I'll tell you where you're going. And I thought, well, that's great. What a good guy. I mean, he didn't make me feel like some kind of a, you know, slacker or something so i called back in three days and he said i said oh you know this is your old buddy sid he's oh yeah uh, let's see um you're going to uh da nang viet no uh uh phuket vietnam <laughs> and i said oh uh what? so not kansas <laughs> yeah. so what about what about that well hey we uh we had the slots and we had to fill them sid and i said okay well you know i i didn't feel like if someone has to go i can't say hey send that guy over there not me so that was it. And then uh, we indeed did decide, despite the fact that I was going off to Vietnam, Judy and I decided we'd get married. And literally on the day of our wedding, which was at her neat little home up in Bellingham, Washington, um, the headline of the newspaper, that, that was when, you know, Vietnamization of the war was happening. Uh, right. Nixon was president. So uh, – Right there on the front page of the Bellingham Herald, you know, there was another air, a base being turned over to the Vietnamese, and it was Phuket Air Base. It was no longer going to be an American base, and it was like a wedding present. And I went around showing, oh, you know, everyone was kissing each other. And so um, uh, when I got down to – we got married and literally drove down to Texas the next day to join the Air Force and become a flight surgeon. And when I ended up talking to that guy again, Colonel Ilsley is the name, as I recall, mm -hmm. um, he said, well, you're going to Da Nang. And I said, well, gee, if there wasn't a slot for – oh, I went down there and I found of 140 guys in that flight surgeon class, I was the only one going to Vietnam. And oh. – um, there was uh, there were guys who had asked to be overseas who were actually 
state uh, assigned stateside, which is sort of my first clue that you know it's totally random. But and I didn't even know. Maybe for all I know, it was in fact punitive. But um, I I asked, well, if you know if if the only assignment was to Phuket and Phuket doesn't exist anymore, why am I being transferred to Da Nang? And and in fact, when I got to Da Nang, they didn't know I was coming until the last minute, and they didn't actually have a place for me for the first couple of months until one of the docs rotated out of there. So I was kind of just going from office to office, and anyway. I have some, and even though I'm not a student of the Vietnam War, I'm, uh, you know, I was aware, I was alive, and I was aware, and uh, and I also, uh, because I was interested, could see uh, the beginnings of it. Right. You know, it's not hard to do if you if you're reading about uh, if you're reading about geopolitics in the 1950s, right. and you know, it's easy to come up with, and I yeah, I ended up. Realizing, and I was a big, I was a fan for a long time of of Kennedy uh, when I was younger, mm-hmm. and, and I'm a little younger than you, so I don't really remember his administration very well. Um, I do remember his assassination, but I, uh, in, in they were such a, oh, what's the word? What is not iconicer? What is it? Uh, it, it he, he he was elevated to something right. more than he was yeah. in the first in probably for most of the sixties before the story started to creep in, mm. uh, and, and that and that fascinated me uh, like oh you know if only and so on and then I after a while I became to to come to the conclusion that that really was his war, uh, and you know you can blame. Uh, Johnson for quite a bit of it for escalating it and Nixon for perpetuating it but Kennedy started it more or less I mean Eisenhower Eisenhower sent the advisors but but Kennedy's the one who upped it and and, uh, I have no idea on the speculation of whether he would have backed down or not I kind of tend to go with the historians who say that he probably wouldn't have reacted any differently than Johnson but well who knows it was such a uh, you know the, the the essential theory behind it the domino theory turned out to be right. completely wrong but right but right. speaking of Kennedy by the way you know he um, one of the last public speeches he ever made before his assassination was at Amherst College where he came to dedicate the Robert Frost library and I was a, a sophomore at that time uh-huh. and that was a hugely uh, a moving uh, time when he came I remember seeing the helicopter landing on the athletic field and then this invoke the college uh, convocation and he and his uh, ever, he and all the professors in their academic gowns and as you talk about this iconic status it really was and of course in the mind of a whatever I was 18 year old kid it was like he had this special black glow about him. I mean, he just looked different than all the rest of them. And when he spoke, it was to, you know, he he spoke in a way that no president would ever speak again. You know, it was intellectual. He was assuming his audience would respond to the level of uh, 
language that he, he that he was using and uh, of course it was specific he was talking about robert frost in particular and there he, he made one of these uh, statements that i think has been quoted several times or something like when power corrupts poetry cleanses and uh-huh. uh you know it was just it was so moving and impressive and um you know, that, that he was speaking to, and because he was mainly speaking to just the students and faculty. It wasn't some big, huge public event. So I remember being just incredibly impressed. And then, you know, it was, it was just, I think it was only two or three weeks later that he was assassinated and everyone, it was just shocking. And oh. I remember, you know, there was a, we had a little chapel on the campus and there was a special gathering there and President Plimpton, Calvin Hastings Plimpton III, um, mm-hmm. began. I don't remember what all he said, but I know his opening statement was something like, he was here and we knew him. And, you know, that's the way we felt. It was That was pretty amazing. And speaking of history, well, I'll interrupt. Speaking of sure. history, that's another example of sort of my idiocy back in those days. I I don't know if the name Henry Steele Commager is familiar to you, but he was a he was a uh, you know one of the great historians of American history and a friend of President Kennedy, as a matter of fact, and uh, an advisor to him. And when I was a senior, I took a seminar class with Henry Steele Commager, um, and you know, I was a biology major. I was working on my research project and all that. And this was just sort of, as far as I was concerned, it was kind of a gut course, you know. Uh, we'd just sit around his dining room table in his home in Amherst. And I look back and said, what a wasted opportunity. You know, I could have had such interesting conversations with him. And yet I was just sort of concerned with, you know, getting through the reading material and I just kind right. of blew it. <laughs> oh, anyway. Well, we uh, yesterday was, and I didn't know this for some reason, and I and I thought I I, I knew a lot of um, Kennedy family trivia, and uh, I found out that yesterday, or no, the twenty first, yesterday the twenty second. We're recording this on the twenty third. The twenty second was, of course, the anniversary of the assassination, right. the fifty first anniversary. On the twenty first uh, was Robert Kennedy's birthday, huh. and for some reason that it just yeah. never occurred to me that he had a birthday, and the next day his brother died. Uh, but we were. Um, I had posted a picture and a comment about it on Facebook, and I had a few. Other people comment on it, and we were just kind of talking about counterfactuals mm. and and uh, what kind of president he might have been, right. and what a tortured what a tortured person he was. Um, I think Robert Kennedy, yeah. after his brother died, and how he changed, and but uh, but we we were talking about, or at least I made the comment was, I'm not sure we'll, we'll see someone who even later in life developed such compassion for the least of us, you know, the poorest Americans. He was so shocked. I mean, you know, this was, I mean, I I remember that there's a famous letter from um, prep school, I think, uh, from John F. Kennedy to his father who who said, please send me some newspapers. I had no idea there was a depression going on. This was in the mid 30s. Um, because, you know, yeah. they lived in a different world. Um, 
And he did too. And I think Robert Kennedy, more than anybody, was uh, John Kennedy was uh, was a little detached. Um, he was very practical and pragmatic. And uh, but it seems like Robert Kennedy uh, was so moved when he began to wander out into the poorest parts of our country and see. And he was so shocked. Right. And and there are famous stories of him being actually the old Bobby Kennedy, the old ruthless. Uh, pushing people around, Bobby Kennedy of the fifties and the, and the Attorney General advisor to Joe McCarthy, right? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, it's uh, another uh, one of those misconceptions about right. the the Kennedys. I, I know John Kennedy once said that in a um, in an accurate political landscape, he would have been a Republican and uh, Nelson Rockefeller would have been a Democrat. Right. Those were the days yeah, when there was they? so much blending yeah. between people. And- well, I can remember being a little bit skeptical of Robert Kennedy at first for the reason that he had been, you know, like there he was to sitting next to Joseph McCarthy some of the time. And uh, and yet um, I, I became convinced that his conversion, if that's what it was, was real. You know, that he the compassion you talk about, I think it really was real and well, uh, and McCarthy was a family friend, and uh, again, these were uh, the Kennedys have, uh, were pretty rabid anti-communists, mm-hmm. uh, and that comes directly from God. Talk about kids who were overly influenced by their father. Um, I mean, I'm not sure what their mother did. Uh, I mean, I know she was a big part of their lives, but it seems like mostly she taught them table manners. <laughs> uh, yeah. They, I mean, they became. I mean, look at their look at their sexual escapades. That that is that you know that was learned behavior. Yeah. You know they they and I'm not I I've never been quite convinced that Robert Kennedy was the horn dog that his brother was, <laughs> but. Uh, there is some yeah. evidence, but yeah. I but I'm not quite sure that he was because he was such a family man and uh, had a bunch of kids. And anyway, uh, we we were just I was just thinking that will never happen again. We don't live in that kind of a world where someone can can actually say we we can do better. We need to try harder. Uh, this is the disgrace right. for in this in this particular country. Uh, there was a time, you know, when when. Uh, Obama was campaigning initially. You know, there a lot of people compared him to uh, Kennedy in the way that, in the, sort of the context of what I was talking about earlier, when Kennedy spoke to our college, that Obama's rhetoric was similar in some ways. And uh, you know, I, I it was certainly the first time I had felt anywhere close to the inspiration I had felt uh, when I heard Kennedy speak. But uh, and, and and that's just you know it's sort of sad that uh, for variety of reasons that sort of has faded at this point and and the resistance to it has been so great which is why what you're saying is that you know to have a president uh, speak in the terms that Bobby Kennedy did about the poor and the you know the inequality in this country it's it's less and less likely because the reaction to it from the right wing is so over the top and um, uh, off the mark, you know, that 
barely can dare to speak about it anymore. And they don't have the forum anymore. I mean, there are now. You and I both remember when the when the president addressed the nation. I mean, all the networks, you know, all three of them right. yeah. <laughs> uh, would cover it at the same time. Right. And now that just does not happen anymore. No one sits around and says, "Oh my gosh, the president is going to talk right. at six thirty. Yeah, not only that. I mean, in the in this thing he, when he spoke uh, a couple of days ago about immigration, the the main networks chose not to cover it. They made an active decision not to cover it. And I wonder if I wonder if they make they take that into consideration. You know, I wonder if sometimes they try to sneak things through, <laughs> knowing that no one's watching anymore. Yeah. But, uh, he does not have a bully pulpit anymore. I know right. that there's a big call for people to say, "Use your bully pulpit." Right. You know, right. use your power of the press. It's like it doesn't exist. No yeah. one will watch it. Yeah. There, are, you know, where there's just too many places. Speaking of which, what the go. heck is the origin of the term "bully pulpit"? It sounds like it ought to have been related to te- uh, to. Uh, um, Theodore Roosevelt, but I don't know, uh, <laughs> bully pulpit, we all say it, and I wonder where it came from. Um, I don't so, know. I always assumed it was because of bully yeah. that it was uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. uh, but uh, I don't know either, but he doesn't, you know, he just does not have the, uh, uh, let's see, Wikipedia says... <laughs> That uh, well, I'm not going to read it. Uh, it does seem to be have some association with with T.R. Yeah, okay, <laughs> uh, but it could have just been popularized by him. So, w- would you would you say that your family uh, you grew up in a fairly progressive political family? Yeah, I uh, both my parents were uh, were Democrats and uh, my grandparents too. Uh, my grandmother, I think, was one of the first uh, uh, presidents of the Oregon League of Women Voters. Um, oh. And she was big in the, you know, raising war bonds uh, when, uh, when I think she even met FDR when he came out, uh, you know, I guess, pushing the war bonds. Uh, I don't think they were rabid liberals, you know, I think they were thoughtful liberals. <laughs> Maybe the two don't aren't mutually exclusive, but... Um, and then I had my my dad's sister was kind of a Reagan Republican, um, um, but a social liberal. Uh, I think all my family were social liberals, and I, I, I would like you were saying earlier about the Rockefeller and and Kennedy that I think my aunt. Uh, would probably be pretty appalled by the Republican Party nowadays. Um, so, yeah, short answer, liberals. <laughs> well, I was talking to uh, a friend of mine um, in Phoenix the other day, and we were uh, – he, he's uh, – he does a lot of things, but he, he does things for NPR uh, occasionally, and he was interviewing a fairly famous journalist, and the journalist was telling him the story – of him, this famous journalist, interviewing Barry Goldwater. And, and and it happened that this guy was taking me t- toward the airport. So we were talking about the airport. And and he, he said, this guy in this interview with Barry Goldwater said, well, obviously, Senator, you've been around Arizona longer than I have. But it still amazes me that I remember when Sky Harbor Airport was just one terminal. Uh-huh. 
and you could just park right in front and walk in yeah. and then get on a plane and walk across the tarmac, which actually I remember because wow. um, they didn't start expanding it until the 80s. But and then Barry Goldwater said, yeah, he at some point, I'm not sure when it was in the 40s or 50s, uh, they wanted to land some sort of transport plane. Whatever those are called, they usually they start with C, right. I think. But yeah. and there was no field to land, and they were embarrassed for their state. So uh, he and his brother went out and got the equipment and paved paved out a landing field. So essentially, here's this guy telling Barry Goldwater, I remember when when Sky Harbor Airport was really small, and Barry Goldwater said, Oh yeah, by the way, I built yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, Barry Goldwater's another one who, you know, obviously in his later days was pretty disgusted with his own party. Right. And as much as we remember him from 64 and, uh, you know, uh, his famous speech and uh, what was advice in the. Now I'm forgetting uh, something like extremism yeah. and the defense of liberty yeah, is no liberty vice. Is no vice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, and I grew up in California at that point, and my parents uh, and and so we had a firsthand look at the new conservatism, okay. which was in Governor Ronald Reagan, and they were right. pretty horrified at Reagan. Right. So right. so uh, Goldwater, uh, I remember him being talked about. Yeah, uh, in the household. But as as he grew older, then you uh, you, you know you it's at least in Arizona he was he was a true a true Arizonan, and that's a back then anyway that was kind of a unique individual that was kind of a frontier. And I think he was a man of integrity. I mean, uh, he, he certainly uh, was. You know, it's interesting going back you know, to my family. My my uh, dad was always sort of political, and my parents both in the sense that they were friends of. Uh, most of the Oregon uh, political class, you know, the congressmen, and they would have them over for fundraisers and whatever. And uh, I remember meeting, you know, Wayne Morse and then Mark. And then those were the days, too. You know, Tom McCall was a Republican governor of Oregon, like it's sort of in the mold of Dan Evans and and Mark Hatfield, uh, Republican. You know, these were those were the days. And my uh, my brother was actually a Senate page for Richard Newberger, and um, he, so he was back in the Senate back in the days of guys like Goldwater and Jacob Javits and Everett Dirksen and those kind of Republicans, I, I guess. Um, and then it's an interesting story. Um, my dad was um, became a judge. He was the he was sort of temporarily on the Oregon Supreme Court, and then they created this Court of Appeals, and he was the first uh, uh, chief judge of the Court of Appeals in Oregon. And then he, during, it's an interesting story, when Johnson was president, um, my dad was nominated by Mark Hatfield to serve on the Ninth Circuit, the Federal uh, Court of Appeals, the, the Ninth Circuit, uh, based in San Francisco. And, um, you know, I remember the family talk. I mean, it would have required uh, moving to San Francisco and all that, but, but uh, you know, federal bench, big deal. So anyway, his nomination and another nomination, there were two vacancies for the Ninth Circuit, evidently. One, and a guy from California and my dad were nominated, sent forward to the Senate Judiciary Committee, 
And there was some kind of error that the FBI had made in my father's background check. So they had to send it back to the FBI for some reason or another. The other one went forward and was confirmed. And in the delay um, on my dad's nomination, um, there was the Abe Fortas thing, you know, where where uh, oh, LBJ yeah. nominated. So anyway, LG, LBJ got pissed off and decided he wasn't going to make any more federal uh, judiciary nominations for the rest of his term. So Hatfield promised my dad that he would resubmit his nomination uh, after, you know, under uh, when LBJ was out of office. Well, meanwhile... As you may recall, I think Mark Hatfield and Wayne Morse, the two senators from Oregon, were the only guys to vote against the Gulf of Tonkin resolution. And they were both, you know, well known as anti-war senators. Right. So Wayne Morse was up for election and um, it was Bob Packwood running against him. And mm-hmm. uh, Mark Hatfield didn't really go so far, I think, as to support Wayne Morris, I don't remember, but he didn't, as a fellow Republican of uh, Packwood, do much to promote Packwood, who was very much pro-war. So then, strangely, Packwood beat Wayne Morris, and um, so Mark Hatfield had to tell my dad, he said, you know, I'm really sorry to say this, but I'm in a lot of trouble with the Oregon Republican Party at this point for not having supported Packwood. So I really don't think I can send up a Democrat uh, nominee for this federal bench. And that was the end of my dad's (laughs) uh, uh, opportunity to serve on the federal courts. Wayne Morris is is kind of an unsung hero. He's kind of disappeared, and yeah. he was uh, kind of a remarkable uh, person in in that era because that was there was a that was a gung ho um, period. Oh, yeah. uh, the Gulf of Tonkin. Yeah. I mean, that was. I mean, it was obviously a ruse. Right. It was uh, it was weapons of mass right, destruction. Exactly. Uh, Thirty years prior or forty years prior to the. Whatever it is, yeah. uh, to the uh, Gulf War, Second Gulf War, but um, uh, he was a man of principle. Yeah, he was, uh, and a remarkable man. I don't think people uh, know who he is anymore, right. uh, and that is part of the thing about history that that gets me a little talkative <laughs> when I'm in a group and we bring it up because it's like this is the stuff that fascinates me these people who were there at that particular moment of time I mean obviously John Kennedy wrote a book about uh, people like that or somebody wrote a book about people like Profiles that Profiles of Courage you mean the, yeah. yeah Profiles of Courage which I, I own a I found a copy of it uh, in a used bookstore a paperback and and I and I still have it and I wonder if and I, I look at it every once in a while I wonder is this valuable <laughs> is that, it's not signed yeah. it's just a paper probably not but and I, I've never quite under. I've never quite. I know the conventional wisdom is that Ted Sorensen wrote it, but um, I, I think there's some evidence that Kennedy did some work on it too. So, uh, but I don't think he was that. I, I think he got a bad, uh, a, a generous reputation as a writer. I'm not sure he was much of a writer. In fact, all of the, none of the Kennedys were particularly. Uh, 
good writers. Uh, they just got a lot of help. Yeah. Well, at least he was, you know, if he didn't write that speech and that phrase about poetry cleansing, uh, at least he was uh, the sort who would accept it as, uh, <laughs> would be willing to say it, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I think, I, I think probably he was, I'm not, and I'm, I'm not trying to disparage him. I think he was probably a very good editor and he knew what he wanted to say. He just had, you know, he had people who, who you know, I th- uh, like Ted Sorensen, who who could slip some of that poetry in there, right. and he would probably figure out what was appropriate and what was not, right. and he would add his own. Right. And he also had a, a, a really good education. I mean, you got to give that to them, yeah. to him. He had a, I think at one point when he got a, he got a Yale um, honorary doctorate, and he said he had the best of both worlds. He had. <laughs> A Harvard education and a Yale degree. Or something. <laughs> yeah. that is, and 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 then he was at uh, Oxford. I was at the School of uh, was it, not Oxford, but what is it, the School of Economics in London? London School, of Economics, School of Economics. School of Economics. Yeah, yeah. went there too. Um, and I remember there was a period, and, and definitely was a student. There was a period in the fifties, I think, when he was looking at the Senate. Or had just become, just was elected for the first time in '52 to the Senate, where he actually hired an economist, uh, economist, uh-huh. to uh, give him lessons because yeah. he felt like he needed to know. Yeah. He didn't. He didn't know enough about about the economy. Yeah. Um, yeah, so. But I back to medicine a little okay. bit because I, uh, I you are um, I don't know how to describe you uh, <laughs> retired <laughs> uh, I, I know you're retired but 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 you're kind of semi-retired yeah, right, right? Yeah, I'm still doing some what's the what's the what's the prefix quasi retired uh, uh, you're uh, hemi demi semi retired uh, something in there uh, I know you do. You do still work, and do you still enjoy it? Oh, I do. I, I mean, that's the main reason I do it. I uh, actually, this past Friday, I was there, uh, spent about almost twelve hours in the OR. Uh, but I, I work mainly. I'm just assisting nowadays, and I work mainly with a uh, uh, cancer surgeon who likes to have um, expert help on some of his more complicated cases, and. Uh, so I get the pleasure of being in the OR. I get, you know, I there are times when I still wish I were the one doing the operation, but um, I feel like I'm more than just a pair of hands. You know, I can, uh, I've been, because I've been around enough, I can make suggestions or I can do, you know, a, a skilled assistant does make a big difference in an operation, uh, can make things happen uh, more smoothly. So I get some pleasure out of that, and it's fun to be in the OR and, talk OR talk with the docs and the nurses and then I get to go home and I don't worry about getting called at two in the morning. So Well one of the one of the reasons that, that I was interested uh, besides the books and, you know, the whatever movies I saw where I thought it would be fun to wear a white coat. <laughs> uh, that uh, that I'm not squeamish at all, that that I've never been that way and, and blood and guts have never bothered me. So um so, is there any way you could sneak me in? <laughs> you know, it would have been a lot easier uh, back in the day, in the old days. The- uh, now there are some pretty strict rules about it. Uh, yeah. Actually, the only time I always wished uh, I could have, um, you know, let 
my wife and my son see me operate. The only time Judy ever saw me operate was when I was in training, and back then it was fairly loose. She came in and watched me just do a, a hand reconstruction type operation, uh, <clears throat> which isn't really the sort of thing I ended up doing in my career. And there was never a time when I uh, was able to show my son uh, what it was like. And, and <laughs> the only other time was we were, one of Judy's sisters lives up on Lopez Island, and uh, there was a sort of a family gathering there, and one of the brothers-in-law managed to get a major laceration on his scalp. And so uh, the sister who lives there, who was the um, uh, manager of their medical clinic, we just went down. It was a Sunday. We went down, and she unlocked the clinic, and we went in, and she got out the stuff, and I sewed, the guy, sewed him up and you know, in front of uh, Judy's sister and the wife of the guy and everything i thought well this was sort of i was enjoying the fact that they could see that you know i had a little skill if it was just suturing skin uh, but still it was kind of fun that's the only time I, i've had sort of friends or family see me operate so how long uh, has your official retirement been well i i it's actually been almost 15 years since I gave up my own practice. But after I quit my own practice and I've been doing like, <laughs> I like to say that one reason I, I didn't intend to quit as young as I did. And I, I really was a case of a classic case of burnout and uh, uh, for various reasons. But um, anyway, so uh, that's been about 15 years, but when they hired these new surgeons, I sort of did a little mentoring. They they had me uh, working with them and assisting them in surgery for a while, and then uh, I went and um, two of the guys who had been in the clinic who got also tired of <laughs> the grind, I guess, opened up their own little uh, bariatric weight loss surgery uh, 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 business, and I assisted them uh, with pretty much full time for three or four years, I think. And then um, then I did a little gig as a surgical hospitalist for a while. And now I'm doing this, uh, what amounts to not much more than about once a week assisting. So I, I haven't really, there hasn't been a very long period when I wasn't in the OR in some capacity or another still. And I just had my 70th birthday uh, last weekend. So, so uh Probably time to hang it up, but I no. I still like it. No, I don't. I disagree. But I would imagine that, uh, particularly what you're doing as being an assistant and using your expertise and your years of experience, um, I, I would. I I'm just sorry that the one surgery that you could have done yeah. had you still been practicing on me that I didn't know you at the time because I would have because I think you would have let me watch and that's what I really wanted to <laughs> you do. You know, I, I actually did. Uh, it's uh, well, first of all, I love to even now we still get, we'll get uh, student nurses once in a while in the OR and and I'm um, I love to show stuff say look see this now here's this if you cut on this line here's what happens and here's this space here it's almost like a little secret you know and it's i love knowing those things i love showing them to people and um yeah i had a couple of times i would do like hernia repairs under local anesthetic and uh, one guy in particular really wanted to watch the operation well, i couldn't have him sit up and watch because it would have just you know, crunched the field that I was trying to operate on. But I set up a mirror 
so that he could watch. And I was showing him, you know, okay, here's your spermatic cord and here's this and that. And he was really cool with it, and I, it was fun. So. <laughs> Yeah, I I had an umbilical hernia. It was a minor one. It was there was no problem. I had it for like ten years, yeah. and there was never any sign that it was incarcerated mm. or strangulated or whatever mm. the term is. It wasn't causing me any problems. It was just a bulge, right. and I didn't care for it. Right. Um, and finally, my doctor said, you know, just take care of it before something bad happens. I mean, yeah. and uh, and I kept looking at it thinking, I kind of understand the anatomy, but I don't know how, I don't know how it's repaired. Yeah. I mean, I understand, I understand what it is and I understand the fashion. I understand kind of generally how, how it's done, but, but I really wanted to watch it. And my surgeon was like, oh no, I can't have you doing that. Yeah. It's, and he was just one of these guys who, who wanted me out yeah. and didn't want to think about me as a patient. Yeah. He wanted just to think about me as a hernia. Right. And I, I can understand yeah, it, I, I guess. <laughs> I, would have, I would have liked to watch. Yeah, and well, I, I, would have, I would have set it up for you so you could have. <laughs> yeah, I tried, to, I tried to get my – I had a, a chromioplasty, just a pretty minor rotator cuff tear, but it wasn't a big deal. But uh, I tried to talk that guy into letting me do it too. Yeah. But he, he was like, no, i got to move that shoulder too yeah. much. It's yeah. – it's uh, it's not it's not worth it. So, um, did you? Uh, I want to turn to writing just a little bit before we wrap up because I love um, I love your writing and I just got your book. I uh, you know as I told you I, uh, I I kept putting it off thinking I need to to talk you into putting that in Kindle form because I read a lot of ebooks these days and it's just because I don't I sit a lot in front of a computer, and so I'm looking forward to reading it. But have you always been inclined to write? Um, well, no. You know, I uh, it, this was by far the, the, the biggest project of writing I ever did. Although I, you know, I, again, going back to college, I think the, 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 the one thing I really got out of college that was lasting was my freshman writing uh, English class, which, again, it was a small school. We all had – everyone in the class every, – every freshman, we had – there was a very rigid sort of a um, core curriculum. There were only one elective each semester. So we all took the same math physics class. We all took the same English class, the same American studies class. And English basically um, consisted of three writing assignments a week, which you would um, – and everyone had the same topics, which led to some interesting conversations in the dorms at night. And then the professor would – and then we'd break down into little just like eight guys in a seminar, and they'd print up uh, portions of stuff that people wrote. And we'd sort of dissect it for the writing and for the thought and the rest of it. And it, I think it made me a, a fairly, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm a, I'm, I know I'm not a great writer, but it made me a much better writer. And I think that has been the most lasting thing um, to come out of college. And I enjoy a turn of phrase, you know, I enjoy thinking about what I want to say and making it, you know, coming up with the right way to say it. But I'd certainly never written anything as committed as that book. To me, it's much less of an accomplishment than writing, say, a novel. I mean, this was just basically a memoir. But yeah. but but I really did. Once I got into it, I really got into the uh, 
process of, of writing per se. And the fact that as I wrote, you know, I, things bubbled up from memory that probably wouldn't have been uh, recaptured had I not done the writing. And, uh, and then I, you know, I sort of enjoyed, I would stop and think, okay, how, what is it I'm trying to convey and how can I do it better? And I would write and I would rewrite and I'd sometimes make a sentence that I was pretty happy with or come up with a, um, I remember uh, talking about a phrase. I, there are a few phrases in the book. Even now, I read them and I say, mm, "That was pretty good." You know, like I'm talking about the intensive care unit in on the trauma service at San Francisco General Hospital. And I, San Francisco General Hospital is kind of a main character in the book because it was really the cauldron. <laughs> but um, I think I said something like, "If uh, in reference to that uh, critical care unit, that uh, if if." sickness were heat you would melt in there and I, I thought hey, that's pretty good you know I, uh, so I yeah I got pleasure out of that kind of stuff and of course I got to the point in writing it where um you know I would reread it and reread it and read it and then I'd re realize geez my eyes are just moving down the page and I'm not even looking at it anymore I'd almost memorize the whole book you know and uh so I got to the point where I said you know I just you know, there really is no end point. At some point, you just got to call it quits. Right. And I reread it now once in a great while, and I think, oh, geez, I could have done that better or that better or that better. Oh. But um, anyway, it was it was really a neat process. It was one of the most fun things I, I did. And then originally it was just to, um, you know, I, my thought was uh, I was just going to self-publish it, which is what I did originally. I just... Uh, went to iUniverse and you know it's pretty easy you know you just upload the manuscript and then you know they put it together you know you can choose your it came out of a very professional looking paperback book and then I actually um, later on found an actual legitimate publisher and uh, uh, redid parts of it and, and then it got published by an actual publisher so I so I was wondering if you ever have any desire to uh, you know, as as opposed to somebody like John Grisham or um, Michael Crichton or, or somebody else who who uses their area of expertise. Well, Michael Crichton is is not necessarily a good example because he didn't stay a doctor very long, and he ended up being interested in lots of different things. But he did create ER. Right. Uh, yeah, but, uh, Jurassic Park. Did you, have you ever considered writing a novel? Oh, I have a lot. Yeah, I wish I could. You know, we we. Um uh, Judy's been a member of the Seattle Arts and Lectures thing, I think, almost since it started for as long as we've been up here. And I, um, I just started going after I retired. And so we've heard all these, uh, writers speak over the years. And, uh, the more I listen to some of the great novelists, the more I realize I just don't think I can do that. <laughs> you know, the, I don't have the, I guess I, maybe I could learn it. I mean, I, I can, I, I can create a sentence, but to, to, you know, to, to, I think it's a much more creative venture to write a novel than it is to do what I did. I think what I did was easy compared to that, uh, to create a whole world and characters and coherence and, when my book first came out and I was, you know, thinking of ways to plug it, actually, I, they, the, the publisher did arrange for a few uh, book readings at various places, including actually a sort of a big deal uh, book fair in Portland 
uh, Gore Vidal was speaking while I was. He was speaking to several hundred, and I was in a little side room speaking to about 20 people. Uh, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, uh, so anyway, so, uh, you know, I, I sort of, I don't remember the sequence of events, but somewhere along the line, I sort of got wind of the fact that there were these medical blogs out there. And I also was not really familiar with blogging at that point, but I would go to some of these other medical blogs and and I would leave a comment and somehow bring up my book in the process, you know, and one of the really widely read and he's still going strong uh, uh, medical bloggers, who's also a surgeon, um, you know, I did that a couple times, and he finally left a comment. He basically said, "You know, get your own goddamn blog and stop. You know, this is, you know, this is really rude or something." And I all of a sudden, right. I, I, you know, it was like a slap on the forehead, and I realized, wow, you know, he's right. This is kind of stupid of me, and 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 uh, whatever. Uh, so I started a blog uh, about surgery, and. Um, with the idea originally that it would be a way to promote my book, you know, and then it, it sort of got a life of its own and it got to be a lot of fun in its own right. And uh, I did some, I, I, I think the writing as it evolved, I think some of the writing I did on that blog is significantly better than the writing I did in my book because it was, you know, it went on for a few years after that. And then it actually got a fair amount of notoriety, you know, the, uh, there was an article in the New York Times about five great medical blogs, and mine was one of them. It even got mentioned on foxnews.com as a great medical blog, and it got a couple of awards and things. And it got, you know, in the peak, it had a lot of readership. And, you know, I was writing for the layperson mostly to understand what it's like to be a surgeon and to do surgery. And I uh, had a long series where I kind of tried to detail every step of doing an operation. And I had descriptions of, anyway, you know, I I was actually pretty proud of that. I just sort of ran out of ideas eventually. And it still exists because uh, I wrote some stuff about specific disease processes, gallbladder issues and things. And so when people do Google searches, it still comes up pretty high on the list. So it still gets quite a bit of traffic and people will leave comments or questions and I still respond to them. But I haven't actually added content to that blog, new content for several years. But that was an experience and it began out of selfishness and out of being chastised for crapping on other people's blogs. But thanks again and enjoy the rest of your Sunday and uh, go Hawks, I guess. Who knows? Okay. Uh, All right. See ya. Okay. See ya. Thanks for doing this. It's fun. Yeah, thank you, Sid. Right. We'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.